So there are millions of people who need to find jobs that do not exist. They are going to have to turn to entrepreneurship and start businesses. And so, you know, in a, in a real sense, this is this is actually, you know, what what's relevant now. We're, we're actually forced to talk about it, but not in a, oh, wow, entrepreneurs, you know, you're gonna come into the incubator and accelerator and give us your pitch on demo day. It's like, what could you do today to put money in your pocket and keep a roof and some food over your family's head? You're listening to The Breakdown with me, Chris Clearfield. The Breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy, complex world. I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. Hey, before we get started, I wanted to share something with you that I'm really excited about. Every week, I offer three free coaching sessions where I help leaders focus on the complexity and messiness that we all deal with or don't deal with, as the case may be. I've done this kind of work in corporate environments for years, but recently I've started working directly with business owners. Most of my clients run companies generating six to seven figures of revenue, but they want to do more and they want to do it while having a fuller and better life too. They also want to have more impact. They want to feel like they are stepping towards their purpose in the world. What makes my clients great is that they're not afraid of doing the personal work, the hard work that's needed to make a quantum leap in their business, becoming both more successful and more at ease along the way. When we want to change something, most of us use willpower to try to push on it. We try to make more calls, we try to network more, or we try to eat better, exercise more. But in my experience, the key isn't to push harder, but to understand why we're holding ourselves back in the first place. Once we do, once we have that understanding, our resistance dissipates and the road ahead is clear and easy for us to walk. Now, the value of an outsider's perspective in this can't be underestimated, and it's one of the things I love about the work I get to do. Many times that perspective, even just a well-placed question, can be the thing that helps us shift from being stuck in the same old routines to doubling, tripling, or even 10xing our productivity, commitment to goals, our happiness, and our impact on the world. This sounds like something you're interested in. If this sounds like you, my question for you is, are you ready to make the leap? To find out more and to sign up for one of these free sessions, which are first come, first serve, go to chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. Today we're chatting with my friend David Sachs. David is a journalist and an author who's written about a ton of different things. But his most recent book, The Soul of an Entrepreneur, is all about the way that small businesses don't just drive the economy, but also really knit our communities together. Uh, It's a look at entrepreneurship that's really far from the Silicon Valley kind of myth, the Silicon Valley sort of ethos of, you know, scaling and user growth. Um, The way I think about it is it's, it's not move fast and break things. It's more like move fast and bake things. In his book, he profiles lots of really interesting businesses and, and the way that they also help uh, communities of color, um, particularly immigrants arriving in a new place, really get their feet under them and create something that helps them rewrite and redefine their stories. Um, David's also an entrepreneur whose book launched smack into the middle of the coronavirus lockdown. So we talk about what that's like and what's it like to adapt to all the changes that COVID-19 has brought. So without further ado, I hope you very much enjoy. Uh, my name is David Sachs. I am an author and journalist and like you, used to be a keynote speaker. Um <laughs> And I am the author, most recently, of a book that just came out in the middle of this pandemic 
called um, The Soul of an Entrepreneur, Work and Life Beyond the Startup Head. Awesome. Um, so I'll say why I thought you would be really interesting to talk with. And so first of all, I, I'll say that like I, I've been running a lot recently. I was training I can for- see. Yeah. You look very slender. Very good. The, the, the shaved head, I You got like a Tim Ferriss vibe going on right Thank now. Thank you. Thank, yeah. I will. I will take that. I, I love Tim Ferriss. He's great. <laughs> I will take that. Um, it's going to be funny. To, anyway, um, so I was I was running a bunch and um, I just I just ran like a private half marathon, which was kind of fun. Um, because of course, like you running. That's right. Me? Exactly. But me running, but treating it like a race and like having a miles course or whatever. And, yeah. Yeah, nice. exactly. Um, but Wrapping yourself in an emergency blanket at the end of it. <laughs> Like you pulled totally. it out of your pocket. Totally. totally. Actually, uh, my, um, I got a participation award. Uh, <laughs> no, but my, my girlfriend and her kid and my co-parent and my two kids met me at the finish and they made a little like finish line out of a streamer that I ran. Oh my God. Super sweet. Um, but when I run my mind wanders and one of the, one of my focuses of this training was to like, just try to keep my mind on my running. And like one of my mantras was like, this is my story. Like, this is like, I'm rewriting my story right now. Like in, in going out and running, I'm, I'm, you know, taking whatever story I had before and, and changing it and activating it by the process of running. But one of the things that distracted me was like, you know, six weeks ago in the, the, the middle of March, when kind of all this stuff had started, I was like, fuck, my friend David's book is going to come out. And like, like yeah. April 17th, you're going to be in Seattle nine, or whatever it was. That was nine weeks ago. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so I was sort of thinking about it and I was like, wow, David's book is going to come out. Like, hey, what's that going to be? Like, okay, he's, he's obviously not coming to Seattle because like there's no, no travel. Like, what's it going to be like to launch a book in a vacuum? Mm. Um, and then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, actually, there's a sense in which like David's book in particular is like very spot on because your book, which is great, is is all about how we have been collectively blinded to the kind of mass of entrepreneurship that that forms really the pillar of what we do every day, right? There's been this kind of the myth of the the Silicon Valley entrepreneur, um, which I feel like there there should be a snarky term for that, but there i don't i don't know i don't know the i don't know whatever anyway um which you know that's a, that's a great and noble profession yes and there's absolutely a place for coming up with big ideas and and scaling them but your point is that the fabric of society is really made up by all of these small things that that we collectively basically don't see um but now we're seeing them so so can you talk about that yeah, um, it is, you know, listen, from a purely business perspective and from the author's ego perspective, a horrible time to launch a book. Um, it is very much, I, I, I said, it is like shouting into a black hole, but I didn't say shouting. I, I said a word that is more of a bodily function that sort of rhymes with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, to quote sneezing. Carl Sagan. To, to paraphrase, yes, sneezing, yeah. To paraphrase Carl Sagan. Um, uh, you know, getting media attention has been harder than I've ever had on any of the other books I've written. Um, obviously the bookstores themselves are in a crisis mode. Many have closed or unable to sell. I mean, sales are, 
sales for books are okay, but they're definitely down. It's harder for people to get stuff. Um, and yeah, book tour, you know, uh, which is often the pillar of getting out, meeting people, getting media, making sales, uh, that, that has happened virtually. So I've done a lot of these events, including town hall in Seattle, uh, which cool. was a wonder, which was a wonderful event. Um, uh, with Glenn Fleischman, who we had a great conversation. Uh, but, you know, it's this. It's just two people talking on a Zoom screen. You see a little box of how many people are there. It, that That's basically right. it. Um, so you don't get that personal, you know, connection that, Joel, like you and I as speakers know from a crowd and is so... There's an essential. energy. There's an energy. But yeah, it's, you know, in another way, this book in particular, I mean the economic effect of this crisis has been very much born on the backs of entrepreneurs and business owners, especially at the small, medium, local community level. Um, yeah, Elon Musk is gonna stand at the gates of his car factory and get arrested um, if they don't let him reopen it. And oh, it's gonna hurt his stock performance. But you know, the real, pain is being felt by the businesses in your neighborhood, the businesses in your backyard, the, you know, small industrial companies. I mean, it's not just mom and pop small businesses. It's medium-sized businesses. It's large businesses that don't fit into that model of the sort of startup. And the startups themselves are, are hurting as well, right? They're your scooter startup and your consumer goods startup and whatever. But um, one of the things that's come out of this is actually it's forcing us to have a conversation for the first time in a while about the real value of the entrepreneurs that we care about and we fund and we wanna see exist. Because I think it was this sort of theoretical thing for a while of like, you know, you're in Seattle, it's like, oh, well, you know, if Elliott Bay Books or Third Place Books doesn't exist, you know, that's just disruption at Amazon. And that's, you know, that's okay. That's the, you know, economists say that's disruption. That's what we want. It's another thing to drive down a street or walk around your neighborhood wearing a mask and see every business that makes yeah. your neighborhood what it is and they're all closed down and shuttered and wonder wow if these don't reopen like what kind of a place am i going to live in what is my community going to be yeah. look like and the suddenly the value of the entrepreneurs and the businesses they start becomes something that's not about economics not just about the money they generate uh the taxes they pay the people they employ it's about the way that these businesses actually form the fabric of the communities we all live in. So, you know, it's, it's in that, in that sense, it's been interesting. And I've spent most of my promotional time or most of the time since the book come out writing op-eds, uh, writing stories basically about this, basically about, you know, how, how, you know, we have to, you know, value and support the entrepreneurs that, are, are the ones that we've kind of forgotten about. And, and also the, other, the flip side of that is, you know, we have, what is it in the US, 25, 30 million people out of work, right? More every day. Um, you know, even if the economy turns back on tomorrow, as a lot of people say, which it won't, um, you know, it's not gonna go back to what it was. And so there are millions of people who need to find jobs that do not exist. They are going to have to turn to entrepreneurship and start businesses. And so, you know, in a, in a real sense, this is, this is actually, you know, what, what's relevant now. We're, we're actually forced to talk about it, but not in a, oh, wow, entrepreneurs, you know, you're going to come into the incubator and accelerator and give us your pitch on demo day. It's like, what could you do today to put money in your pocket and keep a roof 
and some food over your family's head. The roof over the family's head, not the food. Subtle. That's a subtle, subtle distinction. Yeah, you know, just I, <laughs> just to be very precise, Chris. <laughs> yeah, um, I like how that very like. I know you're a man like, of science. So. Very serious, very serious, and like deep point landed <laughs> landed with that distinction. <laughs> I know. Um, yes, and I think that the, the I mean the open question I think too is. So in the book, you write about um, a number of different kinds of entrepreneurs. Like one of my kind of favorite, uh, I guess, arcs was you wrote about all the all the different Syrian entrepreneurs um, that you kind of, you obviously did a sort of um, a, cul a little culinary tour. I get, I get the sense, by the way, that you are a man who appreciates good food. Yes, um, well, you as you, I can show you my gut if I tilt the screen down below. <laughs> uh, I also wrote two books about foods, so right. you know, I, I I do keep kind of relying on that. And there's someone's like, there was a lot of food entrepreneurs in this book, and I was like, oh, you know, I started being like, well, you know, food is such an integral part of the economy, like it makes up. And I'm like, you know, like the woman owned a bakery. What do you want me to do? Not go there and eat her croissants? Not eat totally. at the baklava of these people? Like <laughs> totally. But so the. I mean, one of the things that I wonder is just like, you write about this group as a group that sort of, for, for whom entrepreneurship was this, this very empowering thing, right? That they went from, um, you know, they, they, they went to start a new life in, in Canada. Uh, and the entrepreneurship was part of them writing their own story, kind of as we were, as we were talking about before. Um, and it takes a certain amount of fortitude to do that. And one of the questions I have that I think is, I'm curious what, what you think about is, there are so many businesses now that are just going to close, like just no matter what the extent of government assistance is, like there are just swaths of you know food businesses where the market's just not there. And it's, it's not going to be there for, you know, in a way that um, I think can support a sustainable business for potentially months. Um, and so, I mean, do you think that folks, if you just, if you ran a restaurant that just got shut, like, are you going to open another restaurant in September? Like when stuff is quote unquote normal again, if they're in, you know, next spring or whatever, like, what do you, what do you, how do you think people are going to respond from a kind of like through the lens of the kind of resiliency um, when their businesses shut down? Well, I think it's, you know, listen, if you had a fine dining restaurant, um, you know, a high touch, uh, low numbers of tables, um, uh, you know, handheld food, and then it closed down. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to rush back to do that. And you see that already. You see that resiliency, even in the restaurants that are open in the businesses um, in a city like Toronto or Seattle, where you live, you know, the rest, the high-end restaurants I know, they're like, okay, we're going to sell our ingredients. You want these, we're going to sell you loaves of bread. We're going to sell you wine from our wine list. We have biodynamic natural wine. You can't buy it in stores. We're going to deliver it to your house. We're going to do meal preparation kits. Like you're already that seeing that resilience in day one. And, and that is very much in tune with what, um, what you're seeing you know, with groups like immigrants, entrepreneurs, um, and refugee entrepreneurs who are like, what can I do? Okay, this isn't working. I have to change it. Um, I don't think people are wedded to, you know, a particular business or a model. 
And those I know who have had to close their businesses are already saying, okay, well, when this reopens, you know, I'm going to do something totally different that makes sense for now. So I talked to a guy, Josh Charbonneau, who used to, is a cook in Toronto um, and used to work at restaurants I knew and uh, he lost a job and uh, he's like, I'm starting a cooked seafood company. It's going to be me, no one else. I'm cooking the food. I'm preparing it. I'm delivering it. No overhead, no rent, no space. Like this is it. I want it to be as small and as inexpensive as I can. And I just want to bring in money. And if it then has room to grow, awesome. But like, that's the way I'm doing it. Every entrepreneur I know is thinking in that sense. What can make sense now? They're not being like, oh, my cruise ship company shut down. Oh, I can't wait to launch all those cruise ships again, which by the way, like apparently they're like selling out of cruise spots. I mean, who are these people? That's a whole other story. I'm not even going to get into Um, That's your uh, next book. That's my next book I'll never write called. Yeah, it's called Cruising and it's one page and it's like, nope, that's it. Close the book. Bestseller. New York Times, number one bestseller. Uh, But but that resiliency... Chris, please, this is a serious podcast. Uh, Keep forgetting uh, that. Yeah. Um, You know, that resiliency is... It's something that's been kind of sloganeered uh, in in this grand mythology of 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 entrepreneurship that we've we've bought into over the past couple decades, right? It's about grit, it's about tenacity, it's about hustling and hustling harder, failing upward, failing fast. The reality is, it's pure survival. Um, and if you don't adapt, you can't. You know, the entrepreneur cannot sit in a state of um, inactivity, right? It's, it, it goes against the very nature. Uh, and, and the only thing that, you know, I like to say now, like there's two things that every entrepreneur has and every entrepreneur gets when they go out and work on their own, whether they're building a big company or whether they're just one individual like me who works for themselves or you, although you have a decent sized company. Um, uh, and that's, that's freedom and risk, right? Freedom is the ability to act on their own in the way that they feel, how they feel with the resources they have and make decisions and act on them without having to ask permission of a manager or a boss or someone who, you know, can say yes or no, right? Um, if they can do it and it works, then they'll go and do it and they don't have to sort of ask for that. And the risk is the cost of that. It's the financial risk, the personal risk, the psychological risk that comes along with the burden of that freedom. Right now, the risk is there. It's out there. Everyone knows what it is. They're seeing it. The cost is real and it's costing people livelihoods and lives. Um, But the freedom is there too. And it's kind of the only way out for entrepreneurs. It's the only thing they can do is like, okay, well, I'm an entrepreneur. I have to be an entrepreneur. What can I do? What can I salvage here? What's going to make sense? Is there a way that I can keep this going, change this business, start something new? Um, partner up with other people like, and and I'm seeing this in every kind of business in a way that I haven't seen with the corporations. I haven't seen with the big companies because they're, you know, it's like waiting for advice from the board and, you know, it's, they can't move in that same fast way. What, what is it about, do you think there was something about your upbringing that, that drove you to this, this combination of risk and, and freedom? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, there's a great study or a paper that I read out of New Zealand, I think it was, uh, and it was about a, something called entrepreneurial legacy. And, and it said that, you know, people who grow up in families of entrepreneurs um, are, are more likely to sort of 
find themselves as entrepreneurs, uh, either in that family business or in their own thing, because there's a narrative built around it that becomes part of your everyday life. You know, my father has always worked for himself and very highly valued, you know, being an entrepreneur. Uh, taught that to us pretty early on. You want to go do something, do it. Oh, you couldn't find a job when you graduated college from, you know, working in a, in a newspaper and you want to be a foreign correspondent, like go freelance and go do it. And I did. Oh, okay. Like start your own thing. Um, and, you know, he got that from his father who was in the Montreal Jewish garment business and had a bunch of businesses. My mother, her father started a hardware company. She, you know, did clothing sales with her friend a couple times a year. Um, my wife's family is the same. Like I had one relative who had a regular job and she just lost it two weeks ago and she's starting. Wow. Business. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I think it is, it's a value, right? And, and so much of that comes from history. You know, if, if you, if you come from a, a group of people who were immigrants and excluded from professions as, you know, my Eastern European Jewish ancestors were yeah. for a long time, like there is that history of like, oh, you can't go to medical school, like start your own medical school. You're not going to, you know, we're not going to hire you in our, our, our top tier WASPY law firm. We'll start our own law firm. Like, um, and that gets built in as a value. Um, and so for me, it was always this natural thing, but I never really examined it until this book. This book was kind of a, you know, soul searching. I mean, that's kind of where the title came from aside from my editor who thought it up. Um, uh, but it reflects that, but it, it was real. But that's it was the, real, the soul searching. That's the real behind of, the scenes. Yeah, yeah, the, the, how the sausage gets made. Um, but it really was the soul searching of what does it actually mean to work for yourself? I mean, that was the question that, that started me on this, I don't know, five yeah. years ago. Like what, what is the difference between the people who work for themselves and the people who don't? Um, and I remember talking to a friend of mine, Greg Kaplan, who's a professor, an economist at um, uh, University of Chicago. And I'm like, yeah, it's a book about freelancers and working for yourself. And what's the difference? And he's like, you're talking about entrepreneurs. And I was like, oh, right. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Well, and that is an interesting distinction. Um, and actually, I'll, I'll circle back because what we were saying about <clears throat> the big companies not not pivoting as much. Because right? I, I think there's interesting stuff to kind of uh, pivoting is not the right word, but the big companies not adapting. And I think you're right. Part of it is just the velocity of decision-making. So yeah. um, a future guest on the podcast is a um, a guy who runs a an experience design firm. So, you know, they build everything from, you know, amusement park things to, to kind of luxury um, like experiences to- Branded um, luxury experiences. Ice, things involving ice. Um, and, you know, he took a look at this and he was like, okay, um, I've got a firm of, of 30 people. I can't have a firm of 30 people. Like I need a firm of 12 people. And so that was a, a huge decision, uh, obviously, um, weighed on him, but also the right decision. And he was the one that could make it. And he was the only one that, that could make it. And he was the only one that needed to make it. So yeah, I, I definitely think there is an element of that, but you know, if you, the other thing that big companies have is money, right? So, which is, I think, both a blessing and a curse because it gives you the ability to weather a storm and to hold out for the new normal. But I think it also begs the question, like, is there going to be, are we getting back to, to this kind of normal? So I think that there is a way in which um, 
our our fellow former keynote speaker Laura Huang, I chatted with her last week, and and she made the point that you know like really now is the time for these big businesses to to make these kind of dramatic shifts because um, the the whole landscape is is changing. Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's super interesting. But the other thing is to your point about risk. I mean, I think what we see now is that entrepreneurs may be the kind of the the sort of on the front line of risk, but actually so many of us really are, right? Like you're yeah. you know, people I mean people are getting laid off from jobs that that two months ago seemed incredibly stable. Yeah. I mean my cousin worked for Deloitte, right? Um and worked there for a long time and uh just got back from maternity leave and and you know um uh I think that is you know, in, in, in the nature of this economic crisis, I mean, the greatest in history, potentially, um, nothing is stable and secure. We're all living that risk. But, you know, if you have a job and you're employed somewhere, what you don't have is that freedom. And so yes. you essentially have to sit there and pray that you have that job every day. But you, there's nothing, there's no real action you're able to take independently um, uh, to sort of... right roll with that. Whereas the entrepreneur is like, well, I'm living in the edge of risk anyways. I'm about to, I could lose it all. So like, why not? Okay. I'm going to start this. Like I knew a guy, I knew a guy in Toronto, Daniel. Um, Dan is like just one of those guys that probably started a business when he was 12. And the business that he ended up growing and became really, really big was uh, like global travel experiences for kids and university students and like all of the surf camps and ski camps and summer stuff and like all over the world. All, you know, he's like in Uruguay one week and he's flying all over. Anyway, that's dud. So he's like, boom, pops up on his Facebook page. I started a backyard vegetable gardening company. You, you know, I like backyard gardening. Like I know how to do this stuff. You know, I got a team of people who come to your house. We'll build you a vegetable garden. Like we'll plant the seeds. We'll tend it. We won't go in your house. You're not going to see us. You'll have vegetables. You don't have to go to the grocery store. Like boom, just like wow. overnight. And he's not like, I need to raise a seed round. Here's my pitch. It's like, there's no business plan. He's like, seed right. round, seed round. Oh, yes, boom. you're killing it. Boom. It's the Friday show. Things get loose here on the Clearfield Friday show. Traffic and weather. Oh, there's no traffic in the weather show. It's like getting into my good morning Vietnam routine. <laughs> Where were we? That's, and that's, that is that, you know, the risk now, this is what someone said. I was, I was writing another article about people starting businesses now. And uh, I was interviewing a woman who is in the, my brother knows, is in the sort of um, cannabis and, and now psychedelics space in Toronto. And she launched a firm right at the beginning of this. And they've like really pushed and done a psychedelics uh, conference, a virtual psychedelics conference. So she goes, the risk now is not doing something. Like the yeah. risk is, the, the, there's nothing riskier than just hoping and praying. Or like saying, open up the open up business as though like that's going to happen and things will just go back to the way they were on March first. So you know, in a way, you know that that there's there's much to be like. The lesson to be learned from entrepreneurs is not it's not the Elon Musk lesson. It's the lesson of the 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 scrappy restaurant at the corner, the lady who sells tamales and 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 built that into you know two or three locations. Um, it's, you know, that your, your grandparents' business, the farm that they might have, like, it's that like 
fight, scrap, figure out what works, use what resources you have, make a dollar today, make another tomorrow, and, you know, plot ahead. Um, yeah, uh, that's like part of why I wanted to talk with you is both because obviously I knew we would have a, a delightfully witty conversation, at least according to our own metrics. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna rate this a five star podcast. Just so you know, <laughs> on all the platforms, <laughs> incisive questions, funny guests, <laughs> handsome, handsome, both hosting guests. So you know, I my my work has I have mostly gone after big companies with my work. Mostly worked with big companies, you know, Fortune X hundred, um, and I'm still doing work with some companies. I'm doing like. I'm doing a, a super interesting work with Microsoft right now that actually has gotten, it's like a, it's a digital transformation kind of culture change thing. And it's actually gotten accelerated by COVID because they're trying to do, you know, more with fewer resources. And so it's like, okay, well, this is like, this can be a catalyst for that. Um, and there's companies I love that I'll kind of keep doing work with. Like Etsy is, is somebody that I, I like as a lot as a company and I like their people and, um, you know, and they're not a huge company, but they're they're a big-ish company. Um, but what I realized is that the the kind of the audience that I really want to connect with are people like my neighbor, like this, you know, this guy who had to make this really hard decision. People who run the sort of like smaller and and medium-sized firms that I think, um, you know, are the ones that show up at work every day, and not only like and and I think and the best of times realize that the the personal shit that they carry affects their business and so there's a way in which they're kind of naturally more willing to show up and be vulnerable and be introspective which you know as you get higher and higher into big companies i think you get the ability to sort of hide your vulnerability in bureaucracy right and 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 you can sort of show up and have the desire to change things, but not want to put yourself out there in that desire to change things. Or, or put off, you know, the, the responsibility to some, or the, 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 the personal ownership to someone else, right? Oh, well, Sue's at an accounting, you know, she's standing in the way of it or whatever. Yeah, totally. Well, right. And I think, I think you can, you can, um, and it, it, it dovetails exactly with what you're saying about, about these kind of entrepreneurs that are, um, pivoting and or again not not really the word i want to use but like who are who are actually pivoting might be the right word like who are changing something about what they do but kind of bringing their skills or bringing it to a similar <clears throat> a similar a business or a similar way of doing things um and i think that that's a really interesting group to try and and connect with and and try and try and serve throughout this because the, that's the other thing too like you know if you're whatever if you're uh, a, a a fortune 200 company like you got you know you got your your deloitte's you got your whirlpools you got oh sorry you got your deloitte's you got your um your pwc's you got your you know your mckinsey's nothing wrong with whirlpool nothing wrong with nothing wrong with whirlpool you you don't call them for consulting though um <laughs> leaving all um, that whirlpool money behind <laughs> uh and so but i think that 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 sort of infrastructure exists a little bit less in the in the kind of small and and medium size um business world which is why i'm excited to connect with people like you who have this kind of 
like frontline perspective on things. Yeah. Um, and people like Laura Huang who think about, you know, innovation and, and entrepreneurship from, from a research perspective. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I, I mean, can you just, can you talk about yourself and how you're affected by this as a, as a, you know, as a business on, unto yourself? Sure. I mean, I, I make money three ways, right? I sell books, um, which means, you know, I get a book deal. I got a third up front, a third when I deliver the manuscript and a third when the book comes out basically. So, you know, I'm fortunate that that gave me whatever check that was that arrived that, you know, the day I was like, I want to see that in my account the day this comes out, please. Like, don't, don't usually wait yes, you yes. Know, eight weeks and make me have to like, I need it now. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I sell. Which by the way, hold on, just as an aside, I mean, publishing is an industry, you know, and there's all these, you know, struggles, like, et cetera, et cetera. But like, also, like my experience is, and you know, God love them. Like I love the people I work with, but like, yeah. like it took us. I mean, when we when we had our book contract, from the time we like like had a contract in principle to a contract in hand was like nine months or something wow. like that. And it's like, yeah. guys, this is like it's it's like it's a it was a template. Like our agent had a template, and it took them nine months to you sign do this it every day. So yeah, exactly. So so being like not wanting to wait eight weeks for your check is like is not is not a well, joke in this time. Um, you know, you know, I, I I write articles and I get some money for that. It's not you know that's decreasing every year. Um, but whatever. Uh, now I'm I'm thankful for it, especially as I'm writing stuff and and speaking, which over the past you know five years has grown into 70 percent of the money um, that comes in. That's that. You know, that was, you, you know, you, you got the same email that I did from our speaking agency like that just died yeah. a week before everything else. Um, and who knows when that's coming back. If ever, so, right? Again, like, to, to I, your- I, I think I don't tend to subscribe to such extreme predictions of, of the future. Like, will there be fewer conferences for a couple of years? For sure. Um, is it never going to go back to the way it was? No, man, people want to go. They want to hang out. They want to have their coffee and chit chat and get an excuse to go on a vacation and golf and write stuff off. Like, you know, with, with, with ideally a vaccine or cure or some sort of treatment and the, and the, and the pandemicness passing in however long that takes, you know, that aspect of life in some way will return to, some version of what it was. I don't know. I'm not saying it will be, be back to what it was, you know, last year. So yeah, the economic, like I remember at the very beginning of March when it was like, okay, this thing is coming. I remember talking to my, calling my financial advisor and being like, all right, Harmish, you know, I always joke, like, he's like, oh, how much money are you gonna make this year? I'm like, I don't know. What, what if I say I made nothing? Like how much would I need? And, you know, he'd be like, well, that's not going to happen. And I, I literally was like, so let's say that day is come now. Um, and like actually looked in like, I was like, okay, I have this many months. If I spend this much money, like what, you know, um, you know, the worst is not going to pass. I've had other opportunities that have actually come out of this. Um, nothing that's going to be what it was, but you know, I certainly feel it. Um, and who knows, who knows what, what the future can bring. But again, I think for me, it was like the first week of it was just paralyzed and afraid yeah. and not sure what to do. And the book was coming to come out and I was just like, Oh, what was me? And then kind of this feeling of like waking up one day and it's like, okay, like what can I do? I have the ability to do whatever I can do. I can't control any, I can't control 
vaccines. I can't control, you know, budgets for other people. Like I can't control other things. I can only do what I can do. So what action can I take? Yeah. Um, and as an entrepreneur, I can take whatever action I want. If I wanted to like start working on a podcast, working on a new book, you know, pitching articles, like let's go, let's do it. I, or, you know, zoom events, whatever. Um, not all of it will lead to anything or even remotely close to money, but maybe some of it will. And it'll, but more important, like as, getting back to where we were talking about the Syrians, what it did was it like gave me a sense of some control and agency over an uncontrollable situation. It, it allowed me to regain some initiative or feeling of it so that I was able to say, okay, I did, like, I'm able to do something to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually being productive. I'm, I'm, I'm doing something to help myself. And maybe I'm doing something to help other people, even in the smallest way, mention a friend's business in an article. And suddenly they, you know, they, they get more customers that way. Great. Like that's, I did something. Yeah. A, a part of like, shifting and letting go of like this like oh yeah i really like I, I i do work for big companies part of that was like letting go of ego too and letting go of recognition and and or or like the kind of desire to sort of <clears throat> project success by who i associated with right um kind of in that profession yeah i i think that's a healthy thing i mean you know we we, we work for, you know we do stuff with the same speaking agency and and as you know like you could go speak to the Microsoft conference or Fast Company's thing or, or South by Southwest, and you could get less money than speaking to like a group of, as I have done, potato farmers in a high school gymnasium, um, uh, all of them wearing John Deere hats and mud on their boots, right? Like, yeah, you know, and 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 they're a better crowd than the the cool crowd that you thought would be the one that would actually. It's make interesting, it isn't it? Yeah, and it's like really the dollars the same. So when you talk about okay, is there a way to service, you know, and a way to for you to use your knowledge and ability to to not only help but like work with these um, small, medium sized businesses, which again make up ninety five percent of the right. economy. Like that's there's tremendous opportunity there, and will it look the same as it will with working with a a, a Fortune whatever hundred company? Um, no, in some ways, you know, less, and in some ways, easier. Where you can have a exactly. call with, with the person who owns it, your neighbor, and he's like, "Great, Chris, I'll hire you. Here you go. Okay, let's do it. When Monday? Let's go. Come on." Versus yeah, totally. Like, well, gotta talk to Susan in accounting. <laughs> Poor Susan. <laughs> coasting along <laughs> i know there's going to be some some susan in accounting who like this is her wait a minute this is her susan yeah, exactly. in accounting at exactly. microsoft in the consulting exactly. division that's susan. <laughs> if there's a susan there i'm really sorry i didn't mean, mean you. <laughs> um yeah no and and i mean same same for like starting to do this podcast and starting my mailing list it's like fuck, like, I just got to put myself out there, you know, like, there's, I, I've, I've carried so much fear around, like, I heard somebody put it this way the other day, like, like, not wanting to invite people to things, because they didn't want to know how few people were coming to their yeah. things. It's like such an interesting, like, um, like, triumph of the ego to, to sort of try and protect itself by kind of staying small. And I, I don't know, I'm excited to to move past that and to be playing. And the worst it. case scenario is you're no worse off than you were the day you didn't do it, right? The first day totally. you started doing it. Like, okay, six people listen to your podcast. Well, that's six more than you had the day before or whatever. Um, so why not, right? I, I, and that's it. And I think it's, 
you know, the, the mythology that we've built up is that, oh, well, you want to start a podcast. Well, you know, look at what Alex Bloomberg did. That's what you have to do. You know, come up with a business idea, go out to a bunch of VCs, raise a bunch of money, hire the best people, best production, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, actually, when this stuff started, it was just a bunch of people at their computers doing it. Um, you don't need permission to be an entrepreneur. You don't need resources most of the time, at least to start, right? Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's 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 really interesting. The, the you know the other thing about the Silicon Valley model is the the kind of gatekeeper aspect of it, which is is yeah. exactly what you're what you're touching on. Um, and and I wonder, you know, to that extent, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about kind of um, like entrepreneurship across um, and how how it differs in d different demographics. You write about um, uh, black entrepreneurs in in New Orleans, and I can't remember the the woman's name, but she runs the beauty brand. What's her name? Yeah, Jessica Dupart. Yeah, Jessica Dupart, and and the way that kind of she is a source of inspiration for lots of folks. Um, but I mean, can you talk about that? Can you talk about the kind of the different accessibility of entrepreneurship in, in, in different ways? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that, that got me to write this book was this disconnect between the mythology of what an entrepreneur is and the reality, right? The mythology is that, you know, the entrepreneur is someone who is a brilliant individual, usually a man, usually white, usually young, that drops out of Stanford or Harvard, no other school. Um, and, and has this singular idea and a focus on it will not let anything get in their way. And that's Bezos and Zuckerberg and Musk and Gates and, um, and, uh, jobs, of course, right. The, the patron saint of all of them. Right. But, you know, statistically most entrepreneurs, even in the tech sector, their average age is 45 years old. Right. So it's not just people in their twenties, the guy in the hoodie in the dorm room. It's most of them are, you know, 50s, 60s, even older, because uh, they have bring that experience. The fastest growing group of entrepreneurs in the United States are minority women, African-American women, um, Latina women, uh, you know, queer women, women of color, um, Asian-American women. And yet, you know, if you look at venture capital investments, as, as Laura, our, our friend, has done it with her research at Harvard, you know, it's shockingly disproportionate to the reality. I mean, the, the most staggering statistic that, that I saw, which is not even that well known by most people, but should be, is, you know, I don't know, it was like two years ago, the last time the stats were compiled, it was like 2.8% of venture capital investments in the US went to companies led by women, just 2.8%, wow. right? That's and incredible. that was the all-time high Oh. historically, right? That was the high watermark. And the headlines were like, venture capital investments in women are the highest ever. It's like, what? The same <laughs> numbers are pretty much true of companies led by, you know, black founders, brand founders. Um, uh, it, is, it is this disproportionate uh, inequality. And so when, the, when entrepreneurship, which is a great equalizer and allows people to build you know, intergenerational wealth um, to own a piece of whatever you want to call it, the American dream, if that still exists. Um, uh, when that is a mirror of the inequality in the rest of society um, and 
and that disproportionate, you know, inequality that grows and only rewards a certain number of people, like you're really getting into something far deeper than economic problems. It's, it's a deeper societal problem. But the reality is that 95% or 99% of the entrepreneurs that are actually out there are a greater, more diverse group, not just uh, in terms of their, you know, ethnic or religious background or whatever, but like economically, geographically, in terms of the types of business, in terms of the types of business they want to create. You know, the idea that an entrepreneur is someone who creates a, a business that has to grow really rapidly and they sell it, like that only applies to a really, really small amount. Most entrepreneurs aren't. And it doesn't mean they're not successful. If they don't, they're huge, huge right. successful companies that don't follow that, you know, model. Costco in your backyard is a great yeah. one, right? Uh, Nordstrom, for example. Um, you know, but we've so become so enraptured by this sort of instant fame and staggering wealth that a unicorn, these one in a million companies can create that we've geared the culture and the system around entrepreneurship around them. And I think now that we are resetting so much because of this, um, I hope that we'll be able to come out of this and say, okay, wow, we actually need to look at and invest and support and think about a broader meaning of who's an entrepreneur and what that means like, because we can't just rebuild our world and our economy by like finding 10 more unicorns. We don't need that. We need, yeah, we need the, the scooter startup or whatever it is, or, or some sort of next level AI company. Like, yes, we need those things. We, we definitely need those things, but we don't, we can't only have that. We, we still need the butcher and the barber shop and, um, and the restaurants and the daycare centers and all the things that make our communities, the, the auto body shop and the place that makes the parts that go in the auto body shop that's in some distant, you know, industrial suburb. But like, when you stop your car, you need those brake pads. Um, right. We need all these things. And that requires a broader look and almost a reclaiming of, of, of what it means to be an entrepreneur. Well, and, and I think that sort of circles back to, um, I mean, something that I, I uh, that you wrote, which I thought was was fascinating, and I'll just kind of paraphrase it, was like basically academics, academic economists in particular, they sort of want to write this sector off. It's like, well, we really shouldn't be focusing on these small entrepreneurs because they're less efficient at creating jobs, and they're less, you know, they contribute like, you know, per person less to the economy than than these unicorns do, and it just seems like there's this kind of blind spot that's somehow been institutionalized. But to go back to what you started with and, and what you were just saying there, it's like, yeah, but there's, there, is, there is social capital and there is a way that entrepreneurs connect communities and do work that, you know, the, the Googles of the world are never going to do. Yeah. Google is not going to, you know, feed you your coffee in the morning and, um, and take care of your children. Uh, and, and the reality is like a healthy economy, like a healthy portfolio is diversified into all sorts of businesses. And those businesses can't exist without the, the, the smaller medium sized ones under them. You can't, you know, the, the tech world right. loves who's to gonna, talk about- Who's gonna buy ads? Yeah, the tech world loves to talk about the ecosystem of startups. Like a healthy ecosystem has a tremendous amount of biodiversity 
but yes. we've only focused on the alpha predators. And there's a yeah. great paper that I cite in the book um, by these two professors, uh, one out of Duke, the other one out of UNC. And, and it was about the sort of over preponderance of um, reference to companies that raise venture capital or IPO in journals about entrepreneurship. And they said, you know, in some of these journals, those two topics were cited in 50% of the papers, but they actually make up less than 1% of all the businesses that are operating. And, and, and the comparison was great. He said, you know, it was as though half the biology papers were about elephants um, <laughs> and like tigers. Yeah. But, you know, when the reality is that the, 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 the mass of biodiversity on the earth and the importance is more, you know, um, bugs and plankton and yeah. viruses. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, yeah. And, and so we're, we're missing out by, because elephants and lions can sell t-shirts at Disney world and, um, and, you know, get specials on the Disney channel, but um, we're, we're failing to understand the, that greater importance, you know, a healthy ecosystem is a diverse ecosystem. I, I, actually, this often comes up in my work too, where, where people, you know, ecosystems, healthy ecosystems are very complex. Um, and, and my view on, on kind of man-made complexity is generally that it creates brittleness. But in healthy ecosystems, it creates the ability to adapt. And th the distinction is that in an ecosystem, that complexity was evolved, right? So it was, it was kind of evolved over time according to, you know, a relatively constant set of, of environmental parameters. And in the human world, we just, we sort of design complexity in, um, you know, without without kind of incorporating it as as part of the whole in any way. And I think, you know, one of the things we're seeing right now, I mean, you just mentioned childcare, like we're just seeing how dependent so much productivity is on childcare and yeah. on how hiding, hiding from mine right now. Yeah. Right. Totally. Um, yeah. And you know, you can't, you, you, kids, kids need more than Paw Patrol. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting. It's a challenging, um, yeah, it's this kind of challenging point of failure that I think the, you know, one of the things we've seen to, to really zoom out and go big and, and historical, right. Is like, we have this industrialization of everything, right? So childcare has been industrialized in a way that, um, it didn't used to be right. It used to be small and artisanal and run in family units and, um, you know, in extended family units and it takes a village. Now it takes, you know, a kind of school factory to raise a child. Yeah. And, and now we're back to the village, our totally. family units. And now we're back to the village, A, without the practice, B, with a very different set of expectations and yeah. uh, C, without actually the support, right? Because we don't actually have the village. Most of the time we just have like the, the kind of direct family unit. Um, and so there's a lot of brittleness there that, that we didn't see before. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, one of the things about this crisis uh, to me is the virus is the same everywhere in the world. Right. Um, uh, and yet the effect you're seeing on different countries and different societies and different family units in different places. Oh, wow. My computer's going to run out of power. So we really will wrap this up one way or another. <laughs> um, it, and, and, and I think you're seeing it. It's just exacerbating all these things, whether it's trends in entrepreneurship or economics or, or you know, sociological. Um, it, it's just like shining a light on everything because yeah. where there was some imbalance, that's some brittleness, that's just 
the, you know, the brittleness can't withstand the pressure of this. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, with entrepreneurship and that inequality that we'd seen, but we didn't care because it was kind of sexy, you know, Elon Musk and whatever and unicorns, woohoo. And now it's like, oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, that's, we, we need to, we need to shift that. And so I hope, my hope is something will come out of this for that. Yeah. At least totally. care wise. But I think with, you know, with, there is something of fundamentally human about the, like, I think one of the things we're seeing now is we're seeing social capital come back, right? Like we're seeing like yeah. people connecting in ways that they weren't before. And I think yeah. that that's really valuable. And I hope that we're able to take that lesson as entrepreneurs, as business owners and, um, you know, get, get, some credit for that get refocused on on that as a as a society yeah um chris such a pleasure i want to i want to go out on a high <laughs> um tell sammy your book again the book is called the soul of an entrepreneur work and life beyond the startup myth it's published by public affairs um it is available obviously wherever books are sold but i would encourage you to buy it from a business that is in your community, a bookstore um, that you actually enjoy and want to see exist because they can use that and that that money will actually support them. Um, yeah. And the big place with the nanny in your backyard, they'll they'll do fine. Jeff's Jeff's gonna be fine. I, I think he cut healthcare for the rest of the workers today. So um, you know, he'll be all right. He'll be all right. You think he'll be all right? I think he'll be okay. David, thank you. It's uh, always fun to hang out. And um, yeah, I appreciate your insight. It's really nice to see how, you, how you've how you been able to dive into this world and as a, as a participant observer, as a sociologist yeah. would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Chris. I'm, I'm so glad we had this conversation. This was great. Me too. All right, we'll chat soon. Bye, Chris. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening. To stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways, Sign up for the Breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway. So what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show, and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners, subscribe to the show, and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember, if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. The Breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Rain Avant is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter, available at chrisclearfield.com slash thebreakdown. Laura Stack is our editor, and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening, and be well until our next breakdown.